The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. Governor Olson's declaration of martial law beginning July 26th threw a wrench into the strike machine. It brought down a set of new regulations enforced by thousands of National Guardsmen. The Union's permit system, in which Local 574 decided which goods could be shipped or not, was now replaced by a military permitting system. Olson, who had hoped to break the united front of the Citizens' Alliance, allowed permits to small truck operators who signed on to the Haas-Donegan proposal, although that commitment would not actually be enforced. Permits were also allowed for interstate commerce, which the big trucking firms took advantage of. His goal was to enable federal mediators Francis Haas and E.H. Donegan and to help the National Guard keep peace, but as we will see, all this amounted to strike-breaking. One way this could happen was that by agreeing to the proposal, an individual firm promised to increase wages, which in the end only encouraged a striker to break ranks and return to work, despite the other 165 firms not conceding. The Citizens' Alliance as a whole, however, rejected even this, sensing that they had the advantage over Olson and continued to point to the communist leadership as the reason to hold their ground. Additional regulations included a permit for any outdoor gatherings of more than 100 people. It can't be overstated the degree to which this could hamper union efforts. The nightly gathering outside of strike headquarters of thousands of workers and sympathizers was key to organizing and spreading information and awareness. Unlike the permitting system, this regulation could not be justified as also harming the Citizens' Alliance. There was no ban on backroom dealings between bosses and police chief Bloody Mike. This was all on top of the fact that printers who helped produce the organizer were also being attacked. In addition to these, a midnight curfew was instated for public spaces, including theaters and dance halls. In addition to the regulations was the regular harassment by guardsmen of both strikers and especially women's auxiliary members selling papers on street corners. And while the strike force had their hands tied, Bloody Mike was informing his businessmen allies that, quote, the strike was run by communists, so we'll run bayonets up the rumps of these red agitators and then pull the trigger, end quote. Their first attack was explicitly anti-communist. On the night of July 25th, before martial law, James Cannon and Max Schachman, leaders of the Communist League and writers for the Daily Strike newspaper, were arrested. They were not hard to find. Schachman, for some reason, was wearing a 10-gallon cowboy hat. Cannon remarked that they had been searching for entertainment along Hennepin Avenue, luckily choosing the movie theater over a burlesque show, which would have only added to the scandal. But not only were they arrested, their hotel room was raided, finding a load of copies of the newspaper Militant, as well as telegrams and correspondence with strike leaders. None of this was surprising, of course, but the Minneapolis Journal declared the next day, quote, Raid reveals communists run strike from New York offices. New York communists direct local strike through Vincent Dunn. 
The newspapers did suggest, without basis, that Cannon had a gun in his bag, but such exaggerations were commonplace. As Herbert Solo remarked, quote, Press, pulpit, and radio howled for blood. The courts dismissed the city's charges of loitering, because they obviously had a hotel room, and Bloody Mike released them into military custody. Ultimately, Olson allowed their release because of their journalistic activities. Other writers and reporters were not arrested, after all. The following day, July 27th, the Union rallied 15,000 people at the parade grounds. And meanwhile, a delegation of the Union, the Central Labor Union, and the Building Trades Council met with Governor Olson. Carl Skoglin told them that the National Guard had now prevented the strike from ending in favor of Local 574. They demanded that all military permits be revoked, for no trucks to move for 48 hours, and after that, only employers who signed on to the Haas-Dunnigan proposal to be awarded a permit. Furthermore, the determination of permits should be conducted by committee, with strikers on them. Open-air meetings should also be allowed without needing to request permits. Olson refused, although reportedly did rope off the city market. Journalist Charles Rumford Walker pointed out that Olson's refusal should be no surprise. Local 574 was essentially negotiating for dual power, the notion I explained following the Battle of Deputies' run, in which two state entities vied for allegiance to the citizenry. In Russia 1917, this was between the Provisional Government and the Soviets. In Minneapolis 1934, this was between Local 574 and the state of Minnesota. As Walker wrote, quote, In sum and politically, the enigma handed the governor was this. At the historic conference with the strike leaders, they had asked him, in essence, to run over the National Guard permit authority to them. Had he yielded, he would in effect have abdicated sovereignty as governor and as the commander-in-chief of the National Guard. The strike leaders combined their demands with an ultimatum of forceful defiance. He could hardly have submitted to this rebellious defiance of the military and remained governor of Minnesota. On the other hand, if as governor and commander of the National Guard he broke the strike, he was politically dead. The Farmer Labor Party would lie peacefully in a grave beside him. End quote. Thus, unsurprisingly, this extraordinary demand from the Union had left the usual confident governor angry and unsure of himself. On July 31st, Local 574 hosted a massive rally at the parade grounds of 25,000 workers and sympathizers. Local President Bill Brown declared to his fellow unionists that, quote, the Farmer Labor Administration is the best strike-breaking force our union has ever gone up against. Lawyer Albert Goldman went even further in the agitation against the Farmer Labor Governor, quote, judging by the governor's actions, one is justified in labeling Governor Olson as an enemy of the working class. He has given the bosses hard words and no blows. He has given the workers soft words and hard blows. Thus, the strike leader's tactic of aiming their fire at the bosses, hoping to catch Olson in the crossfire, had begun to work. Olson was now clearly wavering under pressure. Thousands of workers applauded Goldman's denouncement of Olson, but also notably, the agitation against Olson led conservative labor leaders to stop attending the rallies, indicating a rift within the labor movement, as the leaders had predicted. 574's leadership told workers and sympathizers to show up at the strike headquarters at 4 a.m. the following day, August 1st. Ray and Grant Dunn, along with Dobbs, prepared at strike headquarters overnight. Taking some naps in cars stationed at the headquarters, 
they were rudely awakened shortly before 4 a.m. Workers informed them that the National Guard had the block surrounded. 1,000 guardsmen, led by Colonel Elmer McDevitt, were armed to the teeth. Bayoneted rifles aimed at the entrance with a battalion of machine guns. This extreme measure to arm themselves clearly demonstrated the National Guard's own intimidation by the Union, but the leaders did not put up a fight. Workers were in line for breakfast and coffee as women's auxiliary prepared and served. This raid was a total surprise. Colonel McDevitt had arrived with a list of leadership to arrest. Ray Dunn was arrested on the spot. Bill Brown and Miles Dunn were not present, but were arrested later in the day before they could be warned. Scogland was in Chicago raising money, touring the Midwest with the truck that had bore the brunt of Bloody Friday, exhibiting the violence the strikers had faced to other Union locals around the region. Notably, the night dispatcher who had intercepted the National Guard in the strike headquarters and became the de facto messenger had signaled discreetly to Grant Dunn and Beryl Dobbs that they too were on the list. Grant and Dobbs escaped out the back entrance, spread the word to strikers still present in the headquarters to reconvene at the AFL headquarters, and then tricked a lieutenant into having Colonel McDevitt grant them permission to cross the guards' lines. Because it was nearly 4 a.m., strikers and women's auxiliary members had gathered to eat breakfast. Schultz, the night dispatcher, also demanded strikers be allowed to eat before dispersing or being locked up. This also allowed word of the raid to spread further. Schultz also insisted that the commissary be allowed to move to the AFL headquarters and a written inventory to be taken of all seized Union property, including the weapons the leadership had confiscated from workers after Bloody Friday. The guard put the weapons on display for propaganda purposes and to smear the Union. Also, a few strikers were still in hospital beds, and they were removed to another site while the doctor on call, Dr. Enright, was arrested, later prosecuted for medical practice in unsanitary conditions, what historian Brian Palmer calls, quote, a slap on the wrist for being out of line with professional standards. That is, he had acted as a class traitor. Those arrested were locked up in a makeshift stockade at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds in St. Paul on Como and Snelling Avenues. They would receive 60 to 90 day sentences of labor. But the raid was not completely one-sided. At one point, the colonel put down his tin hat and an irreverent striker snatched and wore it, ran to the microphone, and led strikers in song, the daring young man on the flying trapeze, as they evacuated headquarters. The soldiers were noticeably demoralized. With local 574 more or less decapitated, Strikers reassembled at AFL headquarters before Grant and Dobbs could even arrive. A meeting of picket captains, including secondary leaders who now stepped up into leading positions, planned out their next tasks, coordinating hit-and-run actions. To avoid another raid taking out the strike, operations were decentralized. 574 set up 20 control stations or curb headquarters around the city, mostly at friendly filling stations, and telephones and couriers served as their communications network. Cruising squads were dispersed around the city. Essentially, 574's leadership had cultured strong enough discipline through rank-and-file democracy that once they were arrested, the strikers could conduct the strike themselves. Journalist Charles Rumford Walker noted, It would be a mistake to say that picketing resumed as usual. It instead broadened with fury. Farrell Dobbs likely exaggerated when he said that scab truckers made 500 calls for help in a few hours, 
but Local 574 had certainly thrown their own wrench into the military strike-breaking. Troops responded to these calls usually to find, quote, scabs who had been worked over, but no pickets. Long lists of attacks on scab trucks were reported in the evening papers, end quote. The newspaper itself reported, quote, marauding bands of pickets roamed the streets of Minneapolis today in automobiles and trucks, striking at commercial truck movements in widespread sections of the city. National Guardsmen and squad cars made frantic efforts to clamp down. The continued picketing was regarded a protest over the military arrest of Brown and the Duns, strike leaders, together with 68 others during and after Guardsmen raided strike headquarters and the Central Labor Union, end quote. But Governor Olson was not yet finished. The National Guard raided the AFL headquarters, surprising the conservative unionists, and also raided the Cooks and Waiters Union, who had allowed the strikers to use their phones. The Guard also occupied 574's headquarters. In these raids, the Guard arrested another 38 strikers. Grant and Dobbs escaped a second time, but had to lay even lower, their physical descriptions being broadcasted over radio. The Guard was so desperate that they raided all 12 apartments in Grant's building. Bob Kramer, the editor of the Labor Review, on behalf of Governor Olson, tried for some time to contact Grant and Dobbs. Once word had made it through the network, they called Kramer, who put Olson on the phone. Olson promised to grant immunity from arrest to them both if they met Olson at the Labor Review's offices at the Sexton Building, now luxury condos in Minneapolis. They agreed to the governor's request and upon arrival found a room full of union business agents. They were informed that, strangely, the governor was already meeting privately with a committee of Local 574. Just as with the hit-and-run pickets, Olson faced more hard-won and obstinate discipline from the union. With the quote-unquote communist leaders arrested or on the run, Olson requested to meet with quote, truly representative rank-and-file committee of Local 574. What he got was Kelly Postal and Ray Rainbolt. Postal and Rainbolt carried out the functions of the contact committee. Rather than allowing leadership to negotiate in closed-door meetings with capitalists, mediators, and the governor, a two-person contact committee was instituted instead. Prior to the raid, the elected contact committee, Ray Dunn and Farrell Dobbs, were allowed only to transmit demands back and forth and were not allowed to actually negotiate. This was to combat the tendency for unaccountable union leadership to negotiate away gains under pressure. New terms could be offered only by the strike committee of 100. Therefore, Postal and Rainbolt refused to negotiate with Olson. In the meeting, they refused to converse with the governor in the presence of AFL business agents. Walker quotes Ray Rainbolt regarding this meeting, quote, We met with the governor, Kelly and I. He said to us, Well, boys, we've got to settle this thing. We said to him, First, you let out our leaders. After that, we'll talk. Kelly called him a copper-headed son of a bitch. And I said to him, Governor, you're right in the middle on a picket fence. Watch your step or you'll slip and hurt yourself bad. He talked and talked. And I said to him, Why don't you start a school for strike-breaking governors? He also asked us if we knew where Grant and Dobbs were. I said, Yes, I know, but you won't find out from me. End quote. Rainbolt and Postal had done well. They presented union demands and made no signal for negotiating. Release arrested leadership, withdraw from the strike headquarters, and withdraw the troops from city streets. It was at this impasse that Olson asked for Grant and Dobbs. 
Francis Haas had fruitlessly attempted to talk with Ray, Miles, and Bill Brown at the fairgrounds, but they wouldn't negotiate, quote, within the confines of a military concentration camp. Grant and Dobbs repeated the same demands as Postal and Rainbolt. Grant also interrogated Olson on the guard's actions. Quote, when I got there, I asked him if those arrests in the rank-and-file committee, etc., were his plan. He said he thought that was the proper way to proceed. I asked him if the tin hats around my house and the intimidation of my wife and children was also part of his plan. He denied that and apologized, saying that he couldn't control all the actions of the militia. Don't you know by this time, I said to him, that you're not fooling around with children? You can take me and Dobbs and throw us into the stockade with the others. There will be plenty of leaders left. The strike will go right on, picketing and all. Grant continued. So Olson turned up the palms of his hands like this and said, Well, Grant, what do you want me to do? I said, Two things. First, release our leaders from the stockade. Second, turn back the headquarters in exactly the condition in which you took it over. All right, he said. I'll do it. End quote. Olson conceded and agreed to release Ray, Miles, and Brown, as well as rescind the warrant for Scogland. He asserted that he ordered the raid because the Union's 25,000-person rally had been held without a permit. However, the leaders claimed they did get a permit. To settle the dispute, National Guard General E.A. Walsh was asked to appear, and Union lawyer Albert Goldman also showed. It turned out that they did have the permit for sound equipment in a mass meeting so the entire event of the day had been conducted without basis. Colonel McDevitt complained to Walsh, General, if I carry out this order, it will certainly lower the morale of my men. Grant snapped back. If you carry out that order, Colonel, it will greatly raise the morale of mine. Walsh cut in angrily. See that you don't use any of those lead pipes on my men. Grant retorted, What about the weapons your troops use on my people? They're hard and sharp enough. Frustrated, Governor Olson waved them all silent. He then ordered the strike headquarters to be evacuated. Night dispatcher Schultz oversaw the withdrawal, ensuring nothing was stolen or missing. He slyly made sure every weapon was present, because after all, they were the private property of the strikers. In its failure, Olson's plan had been revealed. By raiding the headquarters and arresting the leaders, he could then call for the election of a rank-and-file committee with whom he could personally confer and negotiate. With this, he had also hoped to placate the Citizens' Alliance, as well as the conservative labor leaders, by ending Union militancy and removing the Communist leadership. If this had all worked, he would have received the credit for the settlement, setting himself up well for re-election. From his perspective, this plan was sensible, but from the perspective of Local 574, this was straightforward strike-breaking, and the Union said as such. Despite the decapitation and disarray, the organizer continued its publication, its editorial line decided by frantic calls back and forth by available leaders, including James Cannon and Marvel Shaw. The newspaper thundered, Answer military tyranny by general protest strike. Olson and state troops have shown their colors. Union men show yours. Our headquarters have been raided. Our leaders jailed. 574 fights on. Prior to this moment, 574 had refrained from calling for a general strike, given that many workers still supported Olson. Now, however, the governor had taken clear anti-strike actions. Some conservatives in the labor movement had supported Olson despite his imposition of martial law, but that was a tougher line to take following the raids, although Bob Kramer of the Labor Review bafflingly published an article supporting the raid. 
Later, Roy Weir of the Central Labor Union praised Olson for passing the low bar of not ordering the National Guard to march in and kill workers. As justified as the general strike would be, though, Local 574 did not plan on it happening, instead betting on the pressure of its possibility of swaying the governor and labor leaders. There was considerable anger among the city's working class, as well as farmer laborites in general. One example was the University of Minnesota's Farmer Labor Club expelling Olson as its honorary chairman. These sorts of letters and actions likely contributed to Olson relenting and releasing strike leaders. Also on that day, Olson ordered a raid on the Citizens Alliance headquarters, led by Lieutenant Kenneth Haycraft with only a dozen guardsmen. Olson reported, quote, The evidence seized corroborates my charge that the Citizens Alliance dominates and controls the Employers Advisory Committee and that it maintains stool pigeons and labor unions. He also said that there was evidence that the CA, quote, coerced other employers to do its bidding in defying NRA codes. Translation, Olson found nothing that Local 574 wasn't already well aware of, but his action may have won some favor among the workers. The Citizens Alliance still complained, though, whining that this, quote, invasion of our constitutional rights climaxes the campaign of insult, abuse, and misrepresentation which Governor Olson has for some time waged against the Citizens Alliance, end quote. But as much as the strike machine took on, in Walker's words, a demoniac fury, the day of the raid, and a few days after the release of the leaders, the strike began to lose some of its momentum due to the military permit situation. This was the key strike-breaking aspect of Olson's martial law. Naively portraying his actions to be neutral, the military could not, or would not, replicate the dedication and courage of the workers. Because their livelihoods and futures were not on the line, permits were soon issued almost to any businessman who asked for it from the Guard. This had nothing to do with the personal inclinations or ideologies of individual Guardsmen or even Olson himself. This is the typical role of the state in strike actions. General Walsh reported that the Guard had issued permits to a staggering 9,000 trucks out of the city's total of 13,000. That is, this controlled permit system had allowed 70% of the trucks to move without interference. In essence, business was going on almost as usual. Ever caught in the middle, Olson reissued an ultimatum for midnight August 5th to stop all trucks if no settlement was reached, with the exception of necessities. But any employer who signed the Hostonigan plan would be immediately granted a permit. The press reported 67 signed on, but the United Front of the Citizens Alliance protested this ultimatum by filing for an injunction against martial law. Recall from way back in Episode 2 that the court injunction was perhaps the chief weapon used by the capitalist class to break strikes. But ultimately, this went nowhere. Olson, a lawyer and former Hennepin County prosecutor, represented himself in court and won. The Citizens Alliance continued to publish attack ads in print and over radio. The head of the front group, the Employer's Advisory Committee, Joseph Cochran, against any settlement. Quote, If the Hostanigan proposals were accepted by the employers, it would enable Local 574 to claim a victory for communist leadership in this strike, having obtained an increase in wages without or before arbitration, and thereby give prestige to the communistic leaders of the strikes. Such a victory would be followed, naturally, by a campaign to get more men into that union and commit that many more to taking orders from the communists. With this accomplished, other unions would be seduced by the communists, and shortly, all or most of Minneapolis union labor would be communized. 
Thus, communism, after all, is still the real issue in the strike. The mediator's proposal is that the employers surrender. The employers will not surrender to communism. End quote. As Charles Rumford Walker had written, the Citizens' Alliance may have lacked good strategy, but they had good class sense and knew correctly, it turned out, that a failure to beat 574 would have long-reaching impacts. And, in the next one or two episodes, we will find out exactly what those long-reaching impacts were. This has been 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.